0: Welcome back, and thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Christy, and I have always had a fascination with some of the darker sides of life, from true crime to the paranormal and conspiracies. I also believe that knowledge is one of the most powerful gifts we possess. So since I already spend so much of my own time consuming information about these topics, I want to share them and see if together we can learn from them. Today's true crime case takes place in my hometown. I grew up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I moved here from Pennsylvania with my mother and my brother's father when I was around four in 1991. And I lived in and around Myrtle Beach until I moved to Charleston, South Carolina in 2016. Well, I had absolutely no connection to anyone in this case. I am extremely familiar with the area where these crimes were committed and what the scene was like on Ocean Boulevard in 2009. Like I said, I do consume a lot of this type of content out of my own curiosity and fascination with learning about them. I also feel like I may be interested because as a woman, whenever I am out in the world, I have to always be alert and aware of my surroundings to protect myself and my children. And maybe learning about all aspects of the world out there, even the most terrible, I can try to be even more vigilant. Anyways... While researching and learning about a case that happened in your own town where you've literally walked the same streets, been to the same places, and were probably only a few miles away from the incident that occurred, it just hits different. It makes it just that much more tangible. I think our human nature purposefully blocks out some of the reality of these situations at times because that is our natural survival instincts. But these cases are real. These are everyday people just living their life. Also thinking that something like this would never happen to them until it does. As I feel it's necessary to state, I am not a legal professional. I do have a paralegal degree and have worked as a legal assistant, but I cannot give legal advice and would not want to. My legal advice to anyone is always to seek the advice of a licensed attorney. Any information that I state or discuss is alleged unless otherwise proven in a court of law. I am presenting this information for entertainment purposes and for open discussion about the information that is already made public. Brittany Drexel was born in Rochester, New York on October 7th, 1991, I'm probably going to butcher his last name, so I'm so sorry, but to John Kyoglu and her mother Dawn. The two were teens and not married, and shortly after Brittany was born, Dawn married Chad Drexel who adopted Brittany, giving her the surname that she is now known for. After Chad's military service ended, the family lived in a suburb outside of Rochester, where they lived together until around the time Brittany turned 17, when her mother and adopted father Chad separated and were going through a divorce. John, Brittany's biological father, was not in her life until she was 16, because he had moved to a different area. So at this time, Chad and Don are separating, Brittany started to act out, and show signs that she was suffering from mental health illnesses. She even had an episode where she overdosed on prescription medications and then was treated for that. In April of 2009, some older friends at Brittany's were deciding to go to Myrtle Beach to celebrate their spring break. If you're not familiar with Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, it is a very popular tourist destination, and spring break is always very busy, with young spring breakers looking to unwind and let loose on the beach. To give you a little bit of backstory, the history of Myrtle Beach, also commonly referred to as the Grand Strand, actually dates back to the beginning of recorded history, if you believe it or not. The Native American people named this area Chakora, which meant the land. The area was settled by different tribes, including the Waccamaw and the Winyah, and they lived on Chakora for thousands of years prior to the arrival of the Europeans. In the year 1521, around 600 Spanish settlers arrived to North America and anchored their ships just south of Myrtle Beach on the area east of the town of Georgetown, named Hobcaw Barony. Unfortunately, the settlement quickly failed and they returned to their homelands. The first, pro- the first permanent European settlers founded Charlestown, now known as Charleston, in the year 1670. The first English and Native American trading post was established at Hobcob Barony in 1760. And around the same time, in the early 1700s, a man named Robert Francis Withers Alston was given a 66,000-acre King's Grant, which included much of the area that is now known as Myrtle Beach. Through the 1700s, the area began to be a stopping point for those traveling to and from the bustling plantations, as indigo and rice were being grown and exported, and taverns and inns began to pop up around the town. President George Washington even stayed at one such inn at the area that is now known as North Myrtle Beach. If you're not familiar with this area, also another little tidbit, Myrtle Beach and North Myrtle Beach are two different towns right beside one another along the Grand Strand, with North Myrtle Beach being closer to the North Carolina-South Carolina border. There's also a Charleston, South Carolina, and a North Charleston, South Carolina, and they are two different towns and also right beside one another. (laughs) But anyways, throughout the 1800s, the area continued to develop, and in 1907, the local newspaper, the Ori Herald, sponsored a contest to officially name this new town. Mrs. F.E. Burroughs won the contest with the name Myrtle Beach, as she was inspired by the wild wax myrtle trees that grew throughout the shore. In 1908, the Myrtle Beach Pavilion was started as part of the Seaside Inn, which was the first hotel in the area. The pavilion no longer stands, but when I was a kid, it was one of my favorite places to be. The area continued to grow and still does to this day. Developers began to snatch up the land and people started to move in. In 1926, the first pier in the area is built on 14th Avenue North, The Grand Strand has several areas with piers that jut out into the ocean for fishing or for just a casual stroll through the ocean breeze. Then, in 1927, the first golf course, known as the Grand Daddy of Myrtle Beach, Pine Lakes Country Club, was opened. I could go on and on, but from that point until now, the area has continued to grow and develop from the tiny little oceanfront town to a vacation destination for around 19 million tourists annually today. Anyway, back to Brittany. She was hoping to join her friends in Myrtle Beach for spring break, but due to her current mental health and behavioral problems at the time, her parents advised that they were not comfortable with her going to Myrtle Beach and would not give their permission for her to attend with her friends. She begrudgingly agreed to their wishes while inside probably thinking that she wasn't planning on actually listening. So she returned home after her day on April 22nd. And after a while, she was granted permission from her mother to spend a few days and evenings with a local friend since it was her spring break. Unfortunately, that evening, when she loaded up into her friend's car, she was not actually headed to her local friend's house, but was headed to Myrtle Beach, never seeing her parents again. Most of the friends that she traveled with were 18 or older, with her being only 17 at the time and Rochester is about a 14-hour drive to Myrtle Beach. The group stayed at the Bar Harbor Motel on Ocean Boulevard in the heart of Myrtle Beach. The first night, the group went to Club Kryptonite, a nightclub that was located within Myrtle Beach but is no longer open. I remember Club Kryptonite very fondly, Um, (laughs) if you can say fondly. um, I definitely was at that club when I was around 18. But anyways, well, they met up with another group including Peter Brozowitz who was a club promoter, and used this to gain VIP access and treatment for the group. When the club was open, it was an 18 and up club, which many of the clubs in Myrtle Beach were at this time. You would get a special wristband or hand stamp to indicate whether you were over 21 or not and whether you could drink. Brittany was 17, so we can only speculate on how she gained access to the club, but it isn't super difficult to understand. The next day... Brittany was not getting along with the group that she traveled with. Allegedly, some of the group were engaging in the use of drugs, and she was uncomfortable. So she was on her own walking on the beach. Other spring breakers were kind of starting to harass Brittany when she suddenly approached a man that she did not know and asked for his help escaping the situation. He helped her and walked with her back to her hotel. When she arrived, the others were not around, and so she hung out with him in the hotel for a little bit. The entire time while she was on the beach and throughout the encounter with those harassing her and then meeting up with this person and walking back to her hotel, she is texting with her boyfriend, John, and telling him everything. Brittany's boyfriend did not join her on the trip because he had to work, but she was in almost constant contact with him, texting back and forth throughout the day. She told him about everything, fighting with the group, being on her own, meeting the kid on the beach, and she wasn't hiding anything from him and is in constant communication. The next day, she hung out with Peter Brazowitz from the club and his group of friends on the beach, and she spoke with her mom on the phone. Her mom still believed that Brittany was close by at a friend's house in New York. Brittany mentioned being at the beach, but her mom assumed Brittany was referring to the local beach on the shore of Lake Ontario. She later recalled that it was around 80 degrees in Rochester that day, so it didn't seem unusual and didn't make her question. It was their last phone call and the last time they would speak to one another. On the night of April 25th of 2009, Brittany had forgotten her flip-flops in Peter's car earlier that day and decided to walk back up Ocean Boulevard from her hotel to his, from the Bar Harbor Motel to the Blue Water Resort. She was seen on a traffic camera at 8.15pm walking down the sidewalk and was caught again on the Blue Water entrance cameras entering the resort. She was with Peter for around 10 minutes when a girl from her group texted her, angry that Brittany was wearing a pair of her shorts and demanding that she return them immediately. They argued for a few minutes. She was texting her boyfriend saying that she was unhappy or that she was going back to her room to pack her things and go to sleep before driving back the next day. Peter offered to give her a ride back to her hotel, but she declined and left to walk back. Brittany is seen leaving the Blue Water Resort at 9.15 p.m. on the CCTV cameras, which are aimed at the inside of the front doors. The two hotels were about a mile and a half away from one another, and she was not seen on any of the traffic cameras walking back from the Blue Water to the Bar Harbor. About 12 minutes later, her phone is pinged seven miles away. She's obviously no longer walking at this point, And at 11.58, it pinged again for the very last time 50 miles south in McClellanville, South Carolina, just south of Georgetown. Also, her continuous text to her boyfriend stopped around 9.15. Quickly, he becomes concerned because it was a sudden stop in the communication and was very out of her character. Within an hour, he was really upset. He was calling her and texting her, saying if she didn't reply immediately, he was going to call her mom. And when she still didn't respond at all, he did eventually contact Dawn Drexel. To let her know everything that Brittany was in Myrtle Beach, that she's not responding to text or calls, so she also tries to contact her and is unsuccessful. Don, who is in Rochester? contacts a family friend who's in North Carolina, a man named John Hain. He's about three hours from Myrtle Beach. Myrtle Beach is not far from the North Carolina- South Carolina border, so she asked John to please go to Myrtle Beach and alert the police to her being missing and see what he can figure out is going on down there. Dawn also tries to contact the friends that Brittany was with, but they were not responsive to her at all. She decides to head into Myrtle Beach on her own the next morning. These so-called friends that Brittany was with were not really concerned about her whereabouts and continued on with their day as normal, but did say that when she didn't turn up, they suspected that something bad may have happened. And honestly, what the hell? Please take this as a warning to be careful who you are friends with. But anyways, by the time that John Hain and police arrived to the Bar Harbor Motel, the group of so-called friends had relocated to another resort, the Boardwalk Motel, but they left all of Brittany's possessions in the room at the Bar Harbor. Police gained access to the room and later also tracked down Peter, who, strangely enough, had quickly checked out of the hotel room he was sharing with his friends, and they left around the same time that her cell phone stopped pinging altogether. By the time the police got them on the phone, they were already in the car driving back to Rochester, New York. Immediately, police believed that something happened to her before she entered the view of the traffic camera that would have picked her up, eventually walking down Ocean Boulevard. And then her cell phone was pinged a short time later in Surfside Beach, which is several miles south of her location, indicating that she was in a vehicle. It was obviously suspicious that all of these people with Brittany didn't stay or talk to the police, never reported her missing and all returned to New York without a word to anyone and then hired lawyers. There are reports that the group was in possession of several different illegal party drugs, so they may have tried to separate themselves from the situation so they didn't get in other trouble from some of these alleged illegal activities. Like I said, this is alleged, but is obviously extremely suspicious. When she is seen leaving the Blue Water Hotel, she is seen leaving alone. And then peter and his group of friends checked out of the hotel a few hours later which leads to a great deal of suspicion towards their connection to her disappearance there's a possibility that they could have been in mcclellanville at the time her phone pinged They returned back to the hotel to check out at 1am but they are only seen on the security camera leaving the hotel one time at that 1am checkout her father chad believed initially that Brittany ran away and was not harmed But her boyfriend and mother believed she had come to harm as she never used her phone again, never accessed her bank card, and left all of her clothes and her flat iron behind, which she would not have done. She never went anywhere without straightening her hair, and she was proud of her clothing. The initial speculation was that the friends caused harm to Brittany, possibly lured her out of the blue water with that guise of the shorts, and they sold her into sex trafficking, Or they got into a fight and she got hurt and they hid the body and fled. Maybe they set her up to be picked up or a prank. Police were able to rule out the friends eventually, but the public went wild with the many different rumors and speculations on what actually happened. Many blamed the friends in some capacity. Large searches were conducted, especially around where her cell phone last pinged. I even remember seeing a billboard up between McClellanville and Georgetown with her face and a phone number to call if you had any information, and it remained up there for years and years and years. Investigators followed a lot of leads, which each led to a dead end. Six months after she went missing, a camper in McClellanville found a fashionable pair of sunglasses. It didn't seem to be something that most people in the area would wear, and they were similar to a pair Brittany was photographed wearing, so police searched the area extensively. Around that same time, a man named Timothy Sean Taylor is charged with the attempted kidnapping around the same area that Brittany disappeared and becomes a person of interest. His family has some ties to criminal activity, and police begin to suspect there may be involvement in Brittany's case. Also, about a year after her disappearance, another man named Raymond Moody becomes a person of interest. He is a third-degree sex offender with several convictions of harming and sexually assaulting children. He eventually is charged with not registering as a sex offender in South Carolina, and for that he is given a $250 fine. Moody was staying at the Sunset Lodge in Georgetown around the time Brittany went missing. Police gained access to the motel and did a luminol test, which resulted in them removing pieces of the carpet, bed, and bedding for further testing. Brittany's mother and her sister moved to Myrtle Beach to continue their search for her. In January of 2016, there was a press conference stating that while there have been no arrests, no new suspects, no body found, the FBI and law enforcement involved with the search believe that she was no longer alive. They claim that they had known for a long time that she was dead as they were given information by individuals leading them to believe she was murdered at that time. A $25,000 reward is presented. Don Drexel pleaded for the help from anyone to come forward to provide the information that would one, bring the perpetrator to justice and two allow them to bring Brittany home so that they could try to have some closure. A man named Taekwon Brown, an inmate at McCormick Correction Institute at the time of the press conference, was serving 25 years for manslaughter charges. But he told the police that that before he went to prison, he had seen Brittany on four separate occasions over the course of a month in 2009. He was from Walterboro, but he went to a stash house in McClellanville on Monday, April 27th, which was just a couple days after she went missing. And he claimed that when he entered the stash house, he saw 16-year-old Timothy Deshawn Taylor raping her with 8 to 12 others who were taking turns raping and sexually assaulting her. He said initially he didn't know who she was, but he saw something in the news and realized it was her. He said he then returned to the stash house another time and saw her there again, and he was there to give Timothy to Taylor's father, Timothy Sean Taylor, the same man as before that was accused of attempted kidnapping, some money. So just to try to be clear, he was accusing a father, Timothy Sean Taylor, and his son timothy DeShawn taylor of being involved in this alleged stash house incident if you're not familiar with this terminology after a quick google search for clarity it is a home or building used to smuggle people or drugs it is different from the place where these items would be sold and it is meant to hide the items they intend to distribute in order to prevent suspicion and the money from these transactions is not always kept there It is in another location to help if they are robbed or if the police obtain a warrant for that location, they would need additional evidence linking the suspect to the other cash house to then obtain another search warrant to seize those assets. Stash houses are often associated with cartel and drug and human traffickers. Both tailors are being accused of being at this location and now the younger is being accused of kidnapping and the sexual assault of Brittany. So, take Juan Brown says the second time that he saw Brittany, she tried to escape. And he was out in the yard talking to the older tailor when he witnessed her run outside and four men chase her down, hit her in the head with a gun, and drag her back inside. At that point, he says he heard gunshots from inside the house and he assumed that Brittany had been shot and killed. And he said he was getting into his car to leave and he saw two men walk outside of the house with a rolled up rug and put it in the back of a truck before he drove off. From this point, the working theory is that her body had been dumped in an alligator pit to be disposed of, never to be found again. Several witnesses who have not been named had claimed that this is what happened. Timothy Deshawn Taylor, the younger, supposedly gave information to someone and that secondhand account verified that Timothy claimed to have picked her up off the boulevard in Myrtle Beach brought her back to mcclellanville where they brought her into a human trafficking situation but when her disappearance started getting publicity she was killed and disposed of in an alligator pit to remove the evidence police were not able to produce what evidence they had that that would corroborate this allegation and the only thing we have is that this was provided to them by the jailhouse informant his story and details were in such a way that it was compelling but where was the evidence Timothy Deshawn Taylor was federally charged with a crime that he had been found guilty of and served time for at the state level already. He later stated that he didn't have anything to do with the Brittany Drexel disappearance. and He believes that it is wrong that they are trying him again for something he already stood trial for and served his time for just off the word of a supposed jailhouse informant that in his opinion was obviously just trying to cut a deal to save his own skin. During a polygraph Timothy stated that he never met her or knew anything about her until he was questioned about her disappearance and heard on the news about her disappearance. He also stated he was not in the area when she went missing. He also said that he doesn't know Taekwond Brown and has no memory of ever meeting him in any capacity. He also provided proof to law enforcement that he was in school when these alleged occurrences at the Stash House occurred. If you are aware of these types of um, cases and stuff, you may already know that a polygraph is actually quite unreliable. They cannot be used in a court of law as evidence because they can be manipulated very easily and they may not actually be showing a lie, just someone being nervous. And they are insanely unreliable, but police do still use them to try to get people to confess things. Brittany's father strongly believed that Timothy Deshawn Taylor was responsible, and the media was also putting this narrative forward. There were not many threads to pull in this case, unfortunately, so they went hard down this path. And this information was the first new information that had come out in years, since it was such a sensational story from a prison informant, and the news was featuring police officers in the swamps searching for alligator nests. As someone who lived in and around these areas, the widespread belief was that this was the story of what actually happened. Police were also seen at the Sunset Lodge in 2011 because they had a tip that Raymond Moody was living there, and we know that he was given a speeding ticket in Surfside Beach around the time Brittany went missing. In February of 2012, the media released that police received new information regarding Raymond's possible connection to Brittany. But what that information is... Was not provided or released and police reported that there was no no new information and they were unsure where the media was getting this however raymond moody was also a person of interest in another disappearance of a young woman named crystal souls from january 24th of 2005. she went missing from a corner store in andrews south carolina she was known to have an addiction and would occasionally not be seen around for a few days at a time but it was never like this where she would leave her son and not check in. They strongly believe she met foul play early on and she has not been found yet at this time. So potentially people believe that the police were looking into him for that connection and maybe not towards Brittany. So the case remained this way until finally in May of 2022, police confirmed that they had arrested a suspect in connection with Brittany's disappearance, and shortly later police confirm that they have recovered and identified Brittany's remains. Raymond Moody was charged with murder, kidnapping, and criminal sexual conduct in the first degree within Georgetown. It appears that on or around April 26, 2009, Raymond disposed of her remains. Charleston County Coroner's Office, along with the Georgetown Sheriff's Department, Positively identified through dental records that these remains were, in fact, Brittany. Police stated they have been collecting over 100 boxes of evidence over the previous 13 years. The solicitor's office stated that he did not believe that Brittany was kidnapped off the boulevard and that instead she may have willingly accepted a ride from him. But then it eventually escalated into kidnapping, rape, and murder, And they believe that he committed this crime in the same night as he is spotted in Surfside the very next day. There is video evidence of Raymond's car in the same vicinity as Brittany right at the time she disappears. They do not state whether the video shows her actually getting in the car. And as I stated, the solicitor's office was leading us to believe that Brittany willingly got in the car, most likely not anticipating foul play. But was Moody spotted in the car? Or is it someone else driving that eventually passed her off to Moody? Or did she actually willingly accept a ride from Moody? And I don't know what he looks like exactly at the time of her disappearance, but he's not a friendly looking dude. Maybe she was thinking he looked like a father figure and would help her. She did run up to another man before who was a stranger to her on the beach, as we talked about. But that man was a younger person around her age, and very different looking than Raymond Moody. Also to that point, one of his previous assault victims later stated that when he approached her, he made himself out to be a savior of sorts. He was pointing out how she, at nine years old, shouldn't be out alone, and he would take her to a police station to get help. So she got into his car, and then he drove off to then assault her. So to me, it is safe to assume that it is probably the similar tactic that he took with Brittany. And her friend at the hotel that she left, Peter, did offer to take her back to the hotel, but she declined. So why would she then accept a ride from Moody? On one hand, it seems like that couldn't be the case. But also, she's already upset at the way the trip hasn't been working out. Maybe when Peter offered, she wasn't wanting to show weakness and that the whole situation was actually getting to her. So she decided to be an independent woman and head back on her own. But it's a mile walk in the South Carolina heat. And Ocean Boulevard at the time was wild, rowdy, loud, and packed with people. It is possible that she changed her mind. And maybe he rolled up beside her in the slow-moving traffic on the boulevard. Because at this time, it was very common in the evenings for everyone to cruise the boulevard and drive in their cars up and down the blocks, playing music, reveling in the energy in the area. And most of these nights, the traffic moved slower than the pedestrians. So maybe he's slowly creeping along beside her and telling her how she shouldn't be out there this late on her own and that she looks upset and he's willing to give her a ride. Maybe he offers to take her to meet up with his friends. Maybe he offers to take her back to her hotel and she decides to let her guard down and decides to get in his car. He turns around and heads out towards the highway that runs parallel to the boulevard instead of in the direction of her hotel. Maybe she even asks where he's going But he points to the heavy traffic and says not to worry he's a local and he knows a quicker route to her hotel but even if she did willingly get into the car he must have then immediately taken her cell phone and stopped her from being able to get away or use her phone because even previously when she reached out to that stranger on the beach she was updating her boyfriend john telling him what was happening almost like a play-by-play as it was happening but on this night when she was seen leaving the hotel headed back towards her hotel The text messages stop and she does not respond to anything again but her cell phone, like I said, is pinged in Surfside Beach and then McClellanville. Carrie Harding, that nine-year-old girl who I just mentioned a few moments ago that was sexually assaulted by, by Raymond Moody, stated that she did not even know that Raymond Moody was released early from his sentence until he was named as a suspect in this disappearance. It's quite common practice for victims to be notified if the perpetrator is released early from their sentence so that the victim is at least on alert to be aware of their surroundings in the case the perpetrator decides to return in retaliation or some other perverse notion. Once Carrie heard that Moody was named as a suspect, she contacted police to ask them to check if the evidence matched what happened to her, and reportedly it did. She has also stated that she strongly believes there are other victims of Moody's out there that just haven't been linked to him yet. Raymond Moody's girlfriend, Angel Voss, who was dating him when Brittany disappeared and when he became a person of interest in 2011, told the public that she was standing by Moody as she believed that the investigators looked into it and then when nothing came of it, to her, that meant that he wasn't involved until now, years later, when he has been arrested. They met a couple of years after he got out of prison for his sexual assault on Carrie, but she didn't know why he had been in prison until a few years after they had been in a serious committed relationship. And when she finds out, he decides to not hold it against him and to believe that he is a changed man because of their relationship as she reported to have never seen a violent or vile side of him. Raymond Moody was in prison in California where he reportedly was eventually in a prison relationship with a man named Ernest Merchant. Moody had been there for about 15 years when Ernest arrived at the prison and Moody had established himself with a group as someone not to be messed with. Ernest, upon arriving to the prison, allegedly decided the best way for him to earn protection would be to find himself a prison husband. So once he saw Moody, he set his sights on him. Then Ernest was in the showers alone one time when a group of men entered the shower and were creating an escalated situation when Moody appeared and scared the group away. He told Ernest that he saw him entering the showers alone and that he was getting himself into a potentially dangerous situation and he offered to have Ernest move into his cell so he could take him in to offer protection. The next day, Ernest was moved into Moody's cell and the guards allegedly hung a banner over the cell which read, Just Married. Moody told Ernest that evening to be patient with him as he was new to this type of relationship. Moody offered protection and they became quite close, spending a lot of time together and learning about their pasts. Moody told of his upbringing that his father would berate his mother around the house often. He stated that when he was little, he remembered following them around the house while they fought so he could pick up the broken glass and put furniture back in place. At five years old, he found his mother naked in the bathtub with her wrists slashed in a failed suicide attempt and how there were many times he would arrive home from school and find his mother passed out in the yard from drinking and how much shame he felt since all of the school children also bore witness and he remembered how his father was a very dominant figure who berated his family constantly. He then joined the army as a young man before returning home and getting married and having children. Ernest stated that he did not know what Moody had done to land him in prison, but he knew it wasn't something light since he was serving a 20-year sentence, and he stated at the time that he didn't care. As Ernest's release date grew nearer, Moody gave his arrest records to Ernest so that he could truly know who Moody was. Ernest wrote a book after his release from prison, and in the book, he speaks about the entire relationship with Moody. He stated in the book that, quote, There were six victims. They ranged in age from 8 to 17 years old, all female strangers to him. They were randomly selected, stalked, and forcibly sexually assaulted. His rampage lasted two years before he was stopped. unquote. When Ernest asked Moody why he thought that he committed these crimes, Moody said, quote, I don't know why. I had the impulses and thoughts for a long time before I acted on them. I felt it building up in me until I couldn't control it anymore. After the first one, it got easier, Unquote. Raymond also went on to tell Ernest to believe him that he wasn't that person anymore and this whole experience had changed him. He also stated that Ernest was the love of his life, and Moody also advised that his parents were coming from South Carolina to California, and Ernest wanted to meet them and they him. While they were devoutly religious and would only recognize Ernest and Moody's relationship as that of a friendship and nothing more. Once Moody is released at that time, he is to be released to the state where he was imprisoned to live out his parole. Due to the high probability that Moody could find himself reoffending, if made to stay in California, where he had no support system, no relatives or friends, and due to the record, he would have a very difficult time finding employment and housing. There is a way to avoid this if a family member steps forward and takes responsibility for you. You may then return to another state under the person's responsibility to serve out your parole. So he returned to Georgetown, South Carolina, and Ernest also moved from California to South Carolina with him where Raymond's parents set them up at the Sunset Lodge. They lived there together until Moody was released from his parole. Ernest said it didn't take very long before Moody became restless and his moods changed, and he became very distant and hostile if questioned about his whereabouts. Ernest then learned of an affair Moody was having with a married woman, and Ernest and Raymond parted ways. Raymond returned to a life of partying. So for 20 plus years, Raymond Moody was taken out of the public. He was able to control himself since there were no children around him to harm. Yet it didn't take him very long to start wandering again and look for trouble once he was released. I think this speaks a lot to people that harm children. The recidivism rate or the likelihood that a person will re-offend are around 23% for sexual offenders. 33.9% 33.9% for violent offenders, and 45.6% for re-offenders, meaning the more they reoffend, the higher possibility of them continuing to re-offend. And he was all of these, a violent sexual offender who had re-offended more than once. According to the Stop Child Predators website at stopchildpredators.org, quote, Multiple studies have found that the average pedophile has molested over 300 children in his or her life. Sexual offenders are at least four times more likely than other criminals to be rearrested for sexual crimes. Of the released sexual offenders who committed another sex crime, 40% perpetrated the new offense within one year from their prison discharge and the majority of the children they molested after leaving prison were aged 13 or younger. More than 90 percent of child sex abuse victims know the perpetrator. Not all child sexual abusers exclusively target children. Some are opportunistic offenders who seek vulnerable individuals to victimize, ergo assault both vulnerable children and adults. 34 percent of offenders are related to the child they abuse. Studies suggest that convicted sex offenders in prison represent less than 10 percent of all sex offenders living in the United States. Males made up 90% of adult child sexual assault perpetrators, while 3.9% of perpetrators were female, while a further 6% classified as unknown gender. Once Moody was arrested, obviously any suspicion towards Timothy DeSean Taylor was dropped, but he and his family are incredibly upset and at this time have not been given even just a public apology. And while I'm not saying that he or anyone he is involved with are 100% stand-up individuals, If you wanna look into them on your own, please feel free. But as far as Brittany Drexel is concerned, he had nothing to do with it and should have never been brought up or been placed into this case as he was. I think the jailhouse informant was just trying to throw whatever he could at the wall to see what he could stick to, try to lessen his own sentence, and it caused all of these unnecessary resources to be wasted. All of this additional time on the case, chasing this red herring, involving someone who had nothing to do with the case and causing wild hardships, I'm sure, for something he completely had nothing to do with. No matter what he may or may not be guilty of, that doesn't mean that law enforcement has carte blanche to charge you for whatever crime they need to pin you to get you into custody. This is supposed to be a free country after all with being named as a suspect, having your name in the news as being a potential kidnapping and raping and murderer, that will definitely have some serious consequences on your life. And like I said at the time, Timothy Deshawn Taylor was only around 16 years old. I absolutely believe that the police should follow every lead when investigating a crime, especially one of this magnitude. I do not put blame on them for investigating, but where I do believe they made mistakes was in blatantly stating that Timothy Deshawn Taylor was responsible on more than one occasion. That misinformation where there was no evidence to support the claim and when there was not a trial yet is defamatory and harmful to someone's character, which can cause a lot of harm to their life. I think he's owed at least an apology for these accusations at the very least. Raymond Moody pled guilty to the kidnap, rape, and murder of Brittany at the hearing in Georgetown County in October of 2022. Thankfully, he did not force the Drexel family to sit through a trial. He was given a life sentence for the murder charge and 30 years each for the kidnapping and first-degree criminal sexual conduct. I am going to play the audio of what Moody said on his own behalf, but it's difficult to hear, so he states, quote, I was a monster, and I took Brittany Drexel's life, and I don't have the words to express how horrible I feel and how I've felt ever since that day, and I'm very sorry. Unquote. Four months. And
1: I did twenty years and eight months. And I thought that was enough, but was it wasn't. I was a monster. I'm the monster. And I was a shirt, and I took Brendan Greggs' life. And, uh, I don't know the
0: words express so, how horrible field, I feel.
1: And I've felt ever since that day. I'm very, very sorry.
0: Brittany's mother also addressed the court, and here is what she stated.
1: Today hey, me know the truth, and today, Mr. Moody, you face the consequences for that. Today, my daughter Brittany is here with me, with all of us, not just in spirit. Brittany is present. I wear her picture and her ashes around my neck today and every day for the rest of my life to celebrate her life as does her father John, Brittany's grandmother, and the rest of our family and friends. And all of them that are here today, you can see, have their remembrance of her. That's all I have left, that's all we have left, after what you did to her. Brittany was a beautiful 17-year-old with her full life ahead of her. From the moment I gave birth to her, Brittany was my life. She had a beautiful soul, she was our soccer star. She was in her junior year in high school, getting ready for prom, was working, planning for college in her bright future. She was loved by everyone in our family, by her friends, classmates, and an entire community. She was a great big sister to Marissa and her brother Camden. Bernie wanted to get married. She loved kids and wanted to be a mom, a queer woman, a wife. But you took that all away from her. What gave you the right to put your hands on my daughter? You are a disgrace to your parents, to your own children, to your family, and any friends you have left. You are a serial rapist and a child predator. You should be ashamed of your actions, especially having three daughters of your own. I am so glad my daughter was feisty. She fought back. She fought for her life. We know now that she's scratched the hell out of your head, face, and neck. You will forever carry the scars of what my daughter did to you, and I hope you are haunted by what you did to her. Today, no one wins. The criminal justice system has failed my daughter, as it continues to fail so many other victims. And frankly, Mr. Moody, it failed you, because you never should have been released from prison. You should have served the full 40 year sentence, but you walked after serving only 20 years and returned to your wicked ways, and my daughter paid for that with her own life. For 13 years, I have searched for Brittany and suffered the loss of a child. For 13 years, others were blamed for your actions, and for that, I am so sorry for all they endured. My heart is broken. My life forever changed. So many lives destroyed by your selfish actions. Today, nobody wins. I hope you suffer in prison for the rest of your useless life. I have no regard for you just like you had no regard for my daughter's life. Beyond the horrific things you did to my daughter, I am haunted by how many other people you have harmed over the last 18 years. I have spoken to some of your other victims, those lucky enough to have survived but fortunate enough to be haunted by by the memory of being only eight years old and being brutally raped by you. No one wins. The loss of my daughter has ignited a fire in me and set me on a mission to strip away the rights and freedoms of people like you. I will fight along with other victims and their families to make sure that people like you never hurt a child again my daughter's tragic and senseless murder has inspired me Brittany's life and memory are now the driving force behind the initiative to make changes in sex offender laws and to keep monsters like you where they belong in cages so they can never harm again you have no power over me or my family forgiveness is not part of this narrative today The second that you are sentenced, you become irrelevant to me and the world. Whatever anger or hate I may harbor towards you is forever outweighed by my love for Brittany and by the love so many people have shown us along the way. I ask you, Judge Cochran, to sentence Raymond Moody to the fullest extent of the law, not a day less to make sure his last breath is taken in the cage where he belongs where he will never harm another beautiful girl like Brittany again no amount of time in prison would be sufficient for the lifetime you took away from Brittany thank you
0: and that is where I'm going to end this case Like I said in the beginning, this case as well as a few others that I plan on covering really hit home to me because they literally took place in and around where I have lived most of my life. We all believe that things like this don't happen to us. They happen to other people, and those other people also thought the same thing. We have to do better, be better, and make a difference. These things do not have to happen. I am so relieved that Raymond Moody was finally caught convicted and removed from our society and that the Drexel family and all the people that knew and loved Brittany now at least know where she is and what happened so they can grieve and try to cope from this unforgivable, inconceivable loss. My thoughts and love are with them. I am so sorry that that monster was allowed back out onto the streets to be able to do this in the first place. And I'm so sorry that they had to endure this situation. But with that being said, please find me on social media. We can make this into a conversation. And please also share any other case suggestions um, or topics that you would like to hear me cover. I have several that I want to handle, but I want to know what you want to hear. So please feel free to reach out and share. I'm on most platforms under Christie's Chronicles. And Christie's spelled different than what most people spell it like. So it's spelled C as in Charlie, R as in Romeo, I as in India, S as in Sierra, T as in Tango, and Y as in Yankee. Please also check out my website. It's slowly coming together. And that is without the apostrophe in Christie's at Christie'sChronicles.podbean.com. Thank you so much for listening. I cannot express how much I appreciate the support. Please give this a like or a star rating or a review whatever's possible on the platform you're listening on. This really helps push towards more people that may also be interested. So please also share this podcast with others that you think might like this. The next case that I am working on is another serial killer, and this one is woe dark and awful. Not that any of these stories are not also, but just a heads up. It's also another case based in South Carolina and one of the true crime stories that I have been fascinated by since I was a teen, Donald Pee Wee Gaskins stalked the coastal roads of South Carolina, picking up hitchhikers to then bring back to his shack in the swamp to torture, assault, and murder them. So make sure you are subscribed to the podcast wherever you're listening so you're notified when a new episode is made available. So please be safe out there. Spread some light, love, kindness, and empathy in your communities and to yourself. Until next time, peace!